Good morning. Today's sermon text comes to us from Matthew chapter 25, verses 14 through 30. Again, it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his wealth to them. To one he gave five bags of gold, to another two bags, and to another one bag, each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey. The man who had received five bags of gold went at once and put his money to work and gained five bags more. So also the one with two bags of gold gained two more. But the man who had received one bag went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who had received five bags of gold brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five bags of gold. See, I have gained five more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. The man with two bags of gold also came. Master, he said, you entrusted me with two bags of gold. See, I have gained two more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Then the man who had received one bag of gold came. Master, he said, I knew that you are a hard man, harvesting where, where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid and went out and hid your gold in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. His master replied, You wicked, lazy servant. So you knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed? Well then, you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers, so that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. So take the bag of gold from him and give it to the one who has ten bags. For whoever will be given more, and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even they have will be taken from them. And throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Amen. Thank you very much, Nathan. And good morning again to everybody. I trust that you're doing well. If you weren't uh, here at the beginning of the service when I greeted you, welcome now. Thank you for being uh, here today at Greater Hope. Today we're actually finishing a series that we've been doing uh, since the beginning of the fall or, or the beginning of the school year uh, on the kingdom of heaven. Uh, we've been looking at the parables of Jesus in Matthew, uh, these little word pictures that Jesus gives all throughout the gospel of Matthew. Uh, all of them are about the kingdom, what the kingdom means and, and what the kingdom does in our lives. Uh, hopefully what you've seen over the course of the series is one thing, is just how important the kingdom of heaven really is to Jesus' life and ministry. How important it should be to our thinking as we uh, consider what it means to be Christians, as we consider what it means to follow Jesus. Jesus came into the world to bring his kingdom, which means, number one, that Jesus came to reestablish the reign of God, the rule of God over people's hearts. But that by reestablishing the rule of God over people's hearts, it would go out of our lives and, and the reign of God would begin to be established over all things and all of creation. The kingdom is a very wide vision. God is recreating the world he made at first. The world that had been broken, the world that had been uh, marred and messed up by sin, he is now recreating through his son Jesus Christ, the kingdom of God. Well, here in this last parable, 
Uh, this is actually the last one in the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, if you look at your Bible, the next chapter begins the story of the crucifixion right away. Jesus tells this story probably in the last weeks, or definitely the last week, maybe the last days, maybe even the last hours of his life before his crucifixion. The final scene. Not only that, but Jesus is telling us in his final scene about the final scene of the kingdom. He's telling us about how the kingdom will one day end up. Uh, We saw the same thing last week as uh, Matt walked us through the parable of the ten virgins. At the very beginning of that parable, Jesus said, At that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like. The kingdom of heaven will be like. And then today, the same thing in verse 14. Again, I tell you, it, that is the kingdom of God, will be like. All the other parables we've been looking at all throughout the fall didn't start that way. They started with the kingdom of heaven is like. Jesus in those parables was describing the the present reality of the kingdom. Here he is talking about what the kingdom will look like in the future. How the kingdom will one day end up. Now, I know we have a lot of movie buffs at Greater Hope Church. I know that I talk to a lot of you about movies uh, quite frequently. How important is the final scene of any movie? It's real important, isn't it? I mean... If you don't see the final scene, can you really say you saw the movie? Because isn't it at the final scene that everything kind of gets resolved and summed up? It, It helps you really, it should at least, if it's a good movie. It should help you fit together things that maybe you never were able to fit together before. It should help tie up knots that were loose. I'm going to use this as an example because it's such an old movie that there's no risk that it will be a spoiler alert. Uh, But if you ever saw the movie The Sixth Sense... It has one of the greatest final scenes, right? It's very famous because a twist comes at the final scene. You realize Bruce Willis has been dead the whole time, right? Bruce Willis's character has been dead. He didn't know it. Uh, he he had, had no idea. We didn't have any idea. And all of a sudden, it's revealed. What did you do whenever you saw that last scene? If you're like me, you, you began to think back through the entire movie that came before it. Every other scene, you began to see in a different way because now you've seen the last scene. Now you know the thing that you could never have known unless you saw how it all ends, how it all sums up. And so Jesus, the whole reason why last week he talked to us about the end of the kingdom by looking at the ten virgins, this week he's going to compare it to a landowner coming back to settle accounts with his servants. The reason why he's showing us the, the final scene is not just so that we'll spend our time thinking about the future only, It's certainly not that we would live our lives in terror and fear of judgment. That's not the the case at all. In fact, today I want to show you that terror over God's judgment is actually very counterproductive in terms of what God is calling us to do now. Here's what Jesus wants us to know by showing us the final scene. He wants us to rethink every scene that comes before. He wants us to rethink what we believe the purpose of our lives is day by day by day, scene by scene by scene. He wants us to see that every single thing that we have, every day of our lives is meant to be invested for the sake of God and for the sake of his kingdom. Because the day when he comes back is an accounting day. And that day, the the accounting is going to be done on the basis of what have you done with the gifts I gave you? And so if you look at your worship bulletin today, I want to show you how Jesus unfolds this idea in three ways, okay? Jesus unfolds in the, in the story this idea in three ways. First of all, he shows us what our calling every day is. He gives us very specific uh, picture of what we're supposed to do every day as followers of Jesus. 
Secondly, he shows us what the main barrier is to that, like what keeps us from doing that most of the time. And then finally, he shows us how we can get the freedom to do it more and more, how our hearts can be set free to serve God fully. All right, the calling, the barrier, and the freedom. That's what we're going to look at this morning. Uh, First of all, the calling. Uh, Jesus, again here, is comparing the kingdom to one of his favorite uh, images. He's comparing it to a very wealthy, very wise landowner who is entrusting some of his wealth to his servants. Look at what it says there in verse 14. Again, it will, it, it will be, the kingdom will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants or his slaves is, is really the word there, the people that belong to him. He called them to himself and entrusted his wealth to them. Now, this man is apparently very, very, very wealthy because it goes on to say that to one servant he gave five bags of gold, five talents. Remember from several weeks ago, we said a talent, one talent is worth 20 years wages for your average worker. He's giving five talents, a hundred years wages to this one guy. To the next servant, he gives two bags of gold or two talents. 40 years wages. And then finally to the the last one, he gives one bag, one talent, 20 years wages. A lot of money. This is a wealthy man. He's also a very wise manager of his stuff because it says he gives each amount to, to each of the servants according to his ability. That is according to the servant's ability. This man is able not only to have a lot of stuff, he's able to manage it well. He knows exactly what each of his servants is like. He knows, them, he, he knows their, their character. He knows their skills and abilities or lack thereof. And so he, he entrusts each one exactly what he believes they will be able to handle. And then it says he goes on a journey. Now, he doesn't go away to never return, though. Jesus is making sure that we're understanding his parable is all about the kingdom in the future. It's about how the kingdom's going to end up, what's going to happen one day. And so it says in verse 19... After a long time away, the master of those servants returned. He came back to his farm, and he settled accounts with the servants. What's Jesus teaching us about? He's teaching us about his final return one day to sum up everything that he's been doing in regards to his kingdom. That's a true thing that you find all throughout the Bible, this this wonderful expectation. I love how Paul describes it in Titus. He says, it's our blessed hope as Christians. Our blessed hope is that the master that, that owns us, that bought us, that gives us everything we've ever had, that master, that king, is not going to be gone out of sight forever, but one day he's going to come back to our sight. He's going to return to this world, and Jesus is showing us the main purpose of that return is going to be a settling of accounts. Now, did you notice the basis on which he settles the accounts? Did you notice that? He he judges his servants in a certain way. Notice he doesn't rank them and say, hey, the one who earns the most gets the prize, everybody else loses. If you're not first, you're last. He doesn't do that. Instead, he, he seems to be judging only on the basis of one criteria. The first two men had wildly different amounts of money at the end. One had ten talents total. One had only four talents total. And yet they get the same reward. The master says, come and share my happiness. You were faithful in a little. I'm going to make you faithful in much. They get the exact same reward, even though one had earned clearly a lot more than the other. But here, here, here's the basis of the judgment. The final guy gets turned away disappointed. Why? 
Not because he earns the least, but because he did absolutely nothing with what he had been given. It says he dug a hole in the ground, he buried his master's treasure, and then when his master came back, he unburied it, took it to the master and says, here you go, here is what was yours, I preserved it for you in the ground. What is Jesus talking about here? You, you might be confused, but let me try to put it in a simple way. Jesus is saying, the kingdom is going to end with my return. On that day, I'm going to settle accounts. Here's the way you should think about every day of your life leading up to that great day. You have, in everything that you've been given, you have been entrusted with a part of God's wealth. And the way God is going to hold us accountable is not how much he gave you to begin with. Some people have more than others, right? God is not going to favor the rich over the poor. God is not going to favor those who are blessed a lot over those who are blessed only a little. The only, the only criteria of God's judgment on that day is going to be, did you invest? Did you put to use whatever I gave you, however small, however big, did you put it to use for my sake? Did you turn it back into more wealth for the master? Did you apply what you had been given for the purposes of the kingdom? That's what Jesus is trying to tell us. Our lives are not our own, according to Jesus. I hope that in the whole kingdom series, you at least got that point out of every sermon. If Jesus is king, if his call to us is, hey, come and be a citizen of my kingdom, that means... My life is not mine to do with it however I want to do with it. That also means the blessings of my life from the fact that I woke up this morning to the breath that I'm breathing right now, to my money, to my time, to my talents, to my job, to my relationships, whatever it is in my life, that also didn't come because I you know, created it or I earned it or I deserved it or whatever. That came because God has generously bestowed a part of his wealth on me. And he did it with a purpose. He did it so that I would then learn how to do exactly what he does. To take the wealth in my hands and to give it away generously so that I could enter the joy of what it means to give rather than just receive. Jesus tells us that, right? I mean, I love that statement of Jesus. We usually bring it up with our kids at Christmas time. You know it's more blessed to give than receive. <laughs> you should be more happy to give gifts than get them. And all the kids are like, yeah, right, that, that's not true. Jesus didn't know what he was talking about because it's great to get, right? It's great to receive. And yet this story is showing us that's actually true. The joy of the master that these servants are invited to enter into is nothing other than the joy of being somebody who uses what they have not just for themselves, but who uses it for the blessing and the benefit of other people. Isn't that what God is like? I want to show you this morning that is exactly what God is like from the beginning of the Bible all the way to the end. God is the owner of everything. There has never been anyone more rich than God. And yet the Bible says this wonderful thing. God is good, it says. One theologian says that the, that the statement, God is good, is so profound. It doesn't just mean God is not evil. It doesn't just mean God doesn't do bad things. It means positively God deals bountifully with all of his creatures. God is generous. He's open-handed. He's not stingy. In fact, all of creation really is a testimony to this. Uh, the world itself is like a theater 
that's every day putting on display how God loves to give and give and give and bless and bless and invest and invest the wealth that he has. This is telling us that the aim of our lives in the kingdom, because one day we're going to be held accountable for this, the aim of our lives in the kingdom is to learn how to be investors like God invests. And so one verse in the New Testament says this, whatever gift you have, whatever gift you have received, Use it to serve others so that God may be praised. Whatever gift you've received, it could be small, it could be big in your eyes. It could be small in the eyes of the world, it could be big in the eyes of the world. Use whatever gift you have to serve others so that God might be praised. Enter into the joy of your master. We are not owners of our lives, we are merely stewards. We have been entrusted with someone else's wealth. I mean, if you want to think about the difference between an owner and a steward, uh, just think about the show Downton Abbey. Are, are there any fellow fans of that in here? I'm going to admit it publicly. I watched the show. And I actually do also want to watch the movie as well. If you think about that show, and I got hooked into it, the family that owns the estate, right? I can't think of their name right now, but that family, they're the owners. What's their name? The Crawley family. Thank you. I knew somebody would know. The Crawley family owns it all. They're the owners. They're the estate managers. There's the lords and ladies. Those that work downstairs, which are really the interesting people in the story, aren't they? They're the reason why we watch. They're the stewards. They don't own anything, but yet they've been entrusted. And so every day of their life is all about how do I take what the master has given me? How do I take somebody else's goods that have been given to me so, so richly, and how do I apply them for the good of the whole estate? How do I further my master's ends by what I've been given? Jesus says that ought to be our mindset. We ought to think about our lives as not belonging to ourselves, but ultimately belonging to God, given to us out of his gracious and amazing generosity so that we would then turn around and learn how to become generous people just like him. Is that the way you think about your life? Is that the way you think about your life? Jesus says, if you see the final scene of the movie, if you really understood how this whole thing is going to end up, me on the throne, all nations before me, judging people, determining what you have done with what I have given you. If you really understood that, you and I would rethink every day of our lives. Here's a test for you this morning. Do you think of yourself as an owner or a steward of your life? Think about the the last big decision you made in your life. Now, all of us make decisions every day. I'm not talking about, did you eat a banana or did you eat oatmeal for breakfast? I'm talking about like a big decision, the last one that you made. Leading up to that decision, what questions did you ask yourself? Like, how did you make that decision? Like, what was the criteria? How did you break down the pros and cons? Did you ask any of the following questions, any of them at all? What gifts has God given me in this situation that I could use? Did you ask that question? Did I ask that question on my last decision? Uh, Did you ask, how could I invest those gifts to bring honor to Him? How, How could I maybe make a decision in this situation... That, that would lead to other people seeing how glorious and generous God is. Did you ask that question? Did you ask the question, where are the needs among people around me, the people who have real tangible needs, and is there any way that the gifts that I have received perfectly fit those needs like a hand in a glove? And how might that affect the way I make this decision about the job or the move or the, 
you know, what school the kids go to, or et cetera, et cetera. All those decisions. Did you think at all about the final scene of the kingdom of heaven? When God, the one who has entrusted us with unbelievable wealth in all the gifts we have, will say, what did you do to invest it? Did you bury it? Or did you put it to work? As it says, I love that phrase. Did you put it to work for me? I know for me, I get, in, I, I get convicted by that question that I just asked y'all. <laughs> because oftentimes I can run right past all the decisions, small or big, and really only think about how it affects me temporarily. How it conveniences me here and now for the moment, rather than thinking, oh God, what have you given me that I might serve a need, that I might glorify your name? That's the first thing, our calling every day. Every Christian is called to do this. Invest, invest, invest all that you've been given for the good of others and for the glory of God. Now, secondly, what keeps us from doing this? I I just admitted I have a problem with this. Uh, I'm assuming that most of us in the room are are aware of having a problem thinking this way. What causes that? Well, Jesus actually gives us a really interesting insight into that question uh, in the story. I want you to look at the third servant first, the last one, the one who got told he was not going to enter into the master's joy. He was not going to inherit any of the kingdom. Uh, Look at what it says there in verse 24. Uh, The man who had received one bag of gold came, and he said, Master, Master, he said, I knew that you are a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid. And I went out and hid your gold in the ground. See? Here is what belongs to you. And his master replied, listen to this, you wicked, lazy servant. You knew that I harvest where I have not scattered, where I have not sown, and you gather, and I gather where I have not scattered seed. Well then, you should have at least put my money on deposit at the bank so that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. Now notice, it's very clear, right? The master's not happy with this guy. He calls him wicked and lazy. And I think right away our minds go to, okay, that's exactly what we're like in our sin against God every day. We're both wicked and lazy. We're, we're wicked. That is, we're twisted. We, we want our way rather than God's way. God says something and we want the opposite. A lot of times just because we have this independent rebellious streak in us, we're wicked. We're also lazy. That means we don't like to exert a whole lot of effort as, if it's not for ourselves. We would rather reserve our our greatest effort on things that really benefit us and enrich us. But this this man did the same thing. He was lazy when it came to to his master's interests. But notice, Jesus opens up a window into this man's heart to show what's underneath the wickedness and the laziness. He helps us to see the the point of view that the man has towards his master, which causes him not to care very much about his master's assets. And about his master's honor. Did you notice that in verse 24? I knew that you were a hard man. I knew you were a hard man, he says. I knew you weren't fair. I knew I couldn't trust you. I knew that you were overly harsh in your judgments and that no matter what I did, you would never be pleased. I knew that you were a man who sowed, you know, who reaped where you didn't sow. That is, you like to benefit off other people's labor, and here you are using us to do your work for you so that when you come back, you're just rich. I know what you're like. You're one of those rich, 
fat cats who only is concerned about himself. And so what was I doing? I was afraid. I was afraid of investing for you. I was afraid of laying my life out and, and doing anything of any, any risk for you because I wasn't sure how it was going to turn out in the end. I don't trust you, in other words, and so therefore I did not invest on your behalf. Do you see how Jesus is opening up a window into the, the heart that is actually prejudiced against God? That's what sin is at the core, y'all. That's what sin is. Sin, yes, it is not doing what you're called to do. Sin is doing what you're positively told not to do. It's, an, it's, a, it's a behavior. But Jesus is saying the behavior of sin is rooted in a heart set against God. A heart that's suspicious of God. That doesn't trust Him. Because it's already made up the mind. You are too harsh. You are too, you are too just and... and and, and exact in your judgments. There's no way I could ever possibly please you. This is, this is what you see, by the way, kids in the room, in Disney movies and almost every villain I can think of. This is what motivates most of the villains, right? Think about the Lion King. Who's the villain there? Scar, right? Scar wants to take down Mufasa. Mufasa's a great king. I mean, you watch the movie, he's an awesome king. He's a great dad. There's nothing wrong with Mufasa in the movie, but Scar can't stand him. Scar wants him out of the way. Why? He reveals it in one scene. Whenever Mufasa comes up, Mufasa's his brother, by the way. Mufasa walks up, and here's what Scar says under his breath. Oh, look who came down from on high to mingle with the commoners. (laughs) The very same attitude that these servants have toward the master. Oh, look who has come on high now from your long trip and vacation to come and collect the money you did not work for and did not earn. And, and here you are uh, coming to judge us so strictly, and there's no way we can ever please you. So I'm protesting. I just buried it in the ground, and here it is back. Take what's yours and stop treating me like a slave. And I wonder, as we look at that, do we see anything about the way sometimes we think about or feel about God in our own hearts? Can you relate to it at all? No, it may be you're not conscious of it. Maybe you've never said anything like, remotely like that to God. It may very well be. But what I'm trying to show you is every, every time I don't invest what he's given me for his sake. Every time. Every time that I decide to go a different path than what he's calling me to do, I am showing I really don't trust his judgment. I don't trust his guidance. I don't trust his, his management skills. I don't trust his management style. You know, I have hard thoughts of God. This is why one, one writer, some of y'all know this writer very well, A.W. Tozer, he said, what comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. I agree with him. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Either we're thinking, oh, here he is. The God who I can never please. The God who's the slave driver. The God who's like the policeman hiding in the bushes waiting to pull me over and give me a ticket. That God, I can't really trust him. I may be afraid of him. I may try to do some good things so that he doesn't smush me one day. But in terms of an actual heart of loyalty that I would want to actually do hard work so that his honor would be increased, no way. Because he's not really good in my mind. Y'all, that's how sin started in the Garden of Eden. 
In Genesis chapter 3, that was the first lie of Satan. Jesus says Satan has been a liar from the beginning. And Jesus says every time we sin, we're, we're like our father the devil. That's Jesus' words, not mine. Because we believe the same lie that he told. The, the, the snake slithered up to Eve. Uh, Satan came to Eve and says, Eve, did God really mean that when you ate of that tree, you would die? I mean, after all, isn't it, isn't it really the case that God knows when you eat that tree, you're going to become like him? And isn't it the case he doesn't want you to be like him? Translation, isn't God holding out on you? Isn't he unfair? Isn't he a hard man that you can never please? Doesn't he, sow, doesn't he reap where he doesn't sow and gather where he doesn't scatter? Shouldn't you instead follow your own heart? Shouldn't you make up a purpose for yourself in your own life? That's the very heart of sin. And so my question this morning is, y'all, as we think about that final scene of the kingdom, standing before God, it ought to help us rethink every day, every time that I bury something that God has given me. And I'm going to leave you to think about what are the things that you're burying right now that God has given What are the ways that you're avoiding using those things for his sake and you're trying to use them just for yourself, for your own vanity? What are the places where you're choosing just the easy road, the the life of ease and comfort, rather than the hard life of investing for God for the needs of others, investing in ways that are going to end up hurting you and making you tired? Where are you doing that? Underneath that, I want you this morning to see the lack of trust, and I want you to bring that to Jesus. I want us all this morning to see at the deepest part of who we are, we still need the Holy Spirit to work faith in us. We need the Spirit to fight our unbelief with faith. Because at the core of who we are, we really are not acquainted. We're not acquainted enough with the rich mercy that He actually has shown us. We don't understand the rich treasures that every day He pours out just on the forests and the animals, not not, let alone us. His hands are open, y'all. God is not a hard man. His judgment is not a mystery. Passing his judgment is not something he's left in the dark. It's not a pop quiz. He's told you the answers. He's given you the ability to learn how to get ready for that day. And it's simply this. Recognize grace upon grace to me so that I would want to be like that God who shows that kind of grace. I would want to get out there and show it too. One writer from long ago said this, and I love it. He says, us not being acquainted with God's mercy is our sin and our trouble at the same time. The fact that you're not acquainted enough with God's mercy to you today is your biggest sin and your biggest trouble right now. Because it makes us go around heavily or sad or depressed or discouraged when we should be rejoicing. It makes us walk around weak and frail when we ought to be strong. Just like this third servant. Oh, master, you are a hard man. I knew it all along. I knew, I know who you really are. I know what you're really all about. And so I'm not going to trust you with a rejoicing and strong and determined heart. Instead, I'm going to bury it and just kick back. Who knows what this man did during the whole long journey? (laughs) It doesn't actually tell us. I'll tell you what he didn't do. He didn't put one cent of that 20 years wages that he was entrusted into the purposes of the master. Now, thirdly, this morning, we don't want this to be us. So thirdly, how do we get the freedom to invest 
every day of our lives all the things that God has given us? Well, Jesus shows us, and, and you may have already guessed the answer by now. If it's true that the third servant hid the money and did not invest because he had hard and, and wrong thoughts of his master, it's also true that the first two servants did it because they had wonderful, gracious, loving views of their master. And Jesus shows us how by, by giving us some of their thinking and some of their dialogue. Uh, first of all, look at um, verse 16. You can see a little hint of it there. The man who had received five bags of gold, it says, went at once and put his money to work. Notice how eager he is. He went at once. He was given a hundred years wages. I didn't do the math. I don't know how much that would be in today's currency. I would imagine it's something like hitting the Powerball. Now, I don't know anybody who hit the Powerball, and the first thing they thought of doing is, I'm going to go back to work so that I can invest it, and I'm going to work really hard. Most of the time we're thinking, I ain't working another day in my life, right? I'm headed to the beach. I just hit the Powerball. This guy says, though, I am so eager. Thank you, Master, for entrusting me, for thinking that I was worthy enough and, and faithful enough to be entrusted with a hundred years of wages. At once he went, and he began to put it to work. He began to invest it. And it says, when the master came, look at, look at what both of these servants say to him when, when they're examined, starting in verse 20. The man who had received five bags of gold brought the other five. Master, he says, you entrusted me with five bags of gold. That's the opposite of saying, Master, I knew you were a hard man. I knew how stingy and selfish you are. How, you're like Scrooge. This guy says, Master, you graciously bestowed upon me. I didn't really deserve this, but you graciously thought that I could handle this, and so you gave it to me. And then he says, see. And that word for see is, is a really special word in the Bible. Sometimes it's translated behold. And what it indicates is that the person is like surprised. The person is amazed at what has just happened. He says, Master, not only am I amazed that you entrusted me with five bags of gold, I'm also amazed that when little old me went out and put those five bags of gold to use, it gained five more. Master, when I invested in your kingdom, even, even, even though I invested nothing of my own money because everything is yours, when I invested, I never lost the investments that I made in the kingdom were always returned with, with extra increase for you and for your honor. Do you see the different attitude? Unlike the first one who thought, like Scar thought about Mufasa, you're an enemy. I am an unwilling slave of you. I am not going to bow my knee and my heart to you. Even if I obey you, I'm going to do it just because I have to, not because I want to. These guys are like, you're my friend, master. You're like my father and I'm like your son. Your interests are my interests. And so I am going to use everything I have in order to increase your kingdom. In other words, they knew the truth of what Jesus said about every Christian. Here's what Jesus said about every single believer. Fear not, he says, little flock, because it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Don't be afraid. Don't live your life in terror of God's judgment or fear. You don't have to. There is freedom to be found in me, Jesus says. Come to me, and here's what you'll know forever in your life. God is not a begrudging giver of his gifts. He has bestowed them upon you with a smile on his face. And every time you invest it, that smile is still there. 
God loves the fact that his people invest and they get just a little return from their investment by seeing the joy that increases in God among the other people that we are investing in, the people that we're being generous to and giving to. It is God's pleasure to give us the kingdom so that we learn how to make it a pleasure to give what we have to other people. Jesus is saying, if you want to have freedom in your life to invest what you have for God, you've got to settle what your relationship with God is like. You've got to know yourself to be an adopted son or daughter of the king. And then you'll know. And then you'll know. You can trust him. Even when it's hard, and it's always hard to give stuff away. Even when it's risky, and it's always risky to go out on a limb and invest yourself in other people. It's always risky, to it feels risky anyway, to invest yourself in God whom you can't see. But if we know ourselves to be adopted into the family, it makes all the difference. That's why it says in verse 29, and I love this verse, it's kind of mysterious, but I like it because it's mysterious. Jesus says, whoever, for whoever has will be given more. And they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. And I, I looked at that phrase, and I really scratched my head over it this week, y'all. I was like, what, is, what does he mean? And then I began to look at the other places Jesus uses this phrase. In Matthew and in Luke and Mark. And every single time he uses it, you know what he's talking about? Every time. He's talking about the gift of faith. So in Matthew 13, at the beginning of the parables, he says to his disciples, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the mysteries of the kingdom. To you it's been given that gift. And so he says that same phrase right then. He says, to whomever, whoever has, more will be given. Whoever has not, even what he has will be taken away. What's he saying? If you live by faith in Jesus, if you know your place in God's kingdom and in God's family because of Jesus, and that strengthens and encourages your heart, you will be given an abundance on the last day. But no matter what you have, you can be the richest person and the most gifted person on the planet. If you do not have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, what you have will be taken from you. You will have nothing. What Jesus is saying is at the end of the day, the most important thing about you is how you're related to God. It's whether you know God's love and fatherly smile whether you know that that love and fatherly smile will never, ever leave you because Jesus Christ has died on the cross in your place. If you don't have that, you have no foundation to build on. If you have that, you have a foundation that will never, ever be shaken. And so, as we wrap up this series, it's really common, it's really common for people to hear about judgment, final judgment, and think, okay, I know, I know what this is about. I've got to serve God really hard so that he'll love me when I'm dead. Notice Jesus is saying it's actually the exact opposite. <laughs> that is exactly backwards from the Christian gospel. The Christian gospel is, because he's loved me, now I serve. And my service will never, ever, ever be wasted or lost. Ever. If you want scripture proof of what I just said, look at Galatians chapter 4. It was our good news verse today. God sent his son to redeem those who were under the law 
That is, God loved us before we were good. He loved us when we were sinners and sent his son to redeem us so that we might receive by faith adoption as sons. Do you want to know if you're a Christian today? All you got to do is answer one question. Have you received adoption as sons through Jesus Christ? Have you accepted the gift of Christ? Free gift, not earned, not deserved. If you have, that very moment, the Bible says, you become an adopted son of God. And if a son, it says, God has sent the spirit of his son into your heart by whom you cry, Abba, Father, so that you learn that you are no longer a slave, but you're now a son, an heir of God and a co-heir of God's riches with Jesus Christ. In other words, the way you go out and you invest what you have is by the Holy Spirit in your heart telling you, reminding you, bearing witness to you, God loves you. He has adopted you as his own child. He'll never divorce himself from you. He'll never, ever, ever disown you. I don't know about you, but I need that voice all the time because I forget it. It's like a courtroom scene, right? I'm sitting there thinking, well, am I a Christian? Does God love me? And I think of some reasons why he should, and I think of some reasons why he shouldn't, and I'm kind of confused. And then the devil comes in, and he's got all kinds of reasons to remind me of why God shouldn't love me. I shouldn't be a Christian. I shouldn't be a pastor. I shouldn't be this. I shouldn't be that. And then here's the miracle. The Holy Spirit walks into the courtroom. And y'all, the Holy Spirit's got evidence. He's got some evidence now. Because he, he comes in and he says, I was there before this man was born. I was there when God saw him as nothing but a sinner, and yet he looked at him, and I know this because I was there. He loved him with an undying love, even in that time. He loved him in eternity. I was there. I was there when Christ was born of Mary just to save this guy. I was there when Jesus obeyed and invested himself all the way to death for this person. I was there when Jesus died on the cross. And I know this because I was in Jesus just as I am in him. I know that Jesus had him on his mind when he died on the cross. I was there when he rose from the dead. And right after he rose from the dead, you know what happened? Jesus came to heaven. And you know what I saw him do, the Holy Spirit says? I saw him that moment begin to plead this man's name before God's throne. And to say, forgive him, Lord, forgive, I cry, because I have died for him. Do not let this ransomed sinner die. And you know what I saw at that moment? I saw God gladly accepting his son with a smile. I've got evidence, the Holy Spirit says, when this man believed, the very moment he believed, I came to him. The Holy Spirit says, I'm telling you, you honor, I came to him, I indwelled him, and I filled him, and I have never left him, not one other moment in his life since he believed, and I've been working a work that no man can work. I've been making him new, bringing the kingdom of Christ. Don't you need that in your heart every day? I do. And don't you feel, I mean, just you feel it this morning, having that in your heart? doesn't make you want to bury the gifts of God, but to invest them. Let's pray this morning. Father, we thank you so much for your grace and mercy. Lord, for the the blessings upon blessings that you bestowed on your people. God, it, it is amazing. Every time I think about it, week by week, what a privilege. And so God, today I pray that as we come to the Lord's table, And as we think even more about the gospel we just heard and as we see it portrayed to us in the the supper, Lord, the Holy Spirit needs to do some witness bearing in this place today. And so we ask for his witness bearing that he would draw those who don't know Christ to see that they don't, to see that they need him. 
We also ask, Holy Spirit, that you would show up in the courtroom of the heart of those that do and assure us at this table that you love us. You're not a hard man. You're not out to get us. You're a father whose pleasure it is to give us the kingdom. We pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen and amen.